0: The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Garen Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now, couldn't be happier from the Switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere. Podcaster are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 31. Altitude. The wire stations release to you, runway 4, left 20, zero four zero at 5. Clear for takeoff. Seat tied, Altera 0 eyes, we're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protection. On my paragraph, curveballs at 354. set. Fire protection. Fire protection. Fire protection. Fire protection. Fire protection. Fire protection. on. protection.
1: I've had three uh, engine failures, catastrophic engine failures. Uh, Luckily, all three were over airports. So I've had three dead sticks where the prop, like literally just running and then stops. For me, this isn't a hobby or a weekend play thing. Like it's something that I want to be the best at. And I relentlessly work to be the best at it and to be at that high level.
0: Welcome and thanks for listening to the podcast. My guest today is Kevin Coleman, good buddy of mine. He is an air show pilot and an air racer and some exciting news. He is joining as the only American in the new and upcoming world championship air race. He'll be in the aero GP one category. And if you're interested in just a little bit about his aviation journey, what it takes to be an air show pilot, what it takes to compete at a level of uh, a world championship in air racing because believe it or not it's tough to fly down low to the ground real fast we're going to talk all about that today if you're looking to have some additional content the podcast i have a patreon page where supporters get exclusive access to behind the scenes and there i was stories not to mention some merchandise depending on what level you join at and merchandise includes coffee mugs hats Stickers and some leather patches. The podcast is growing, and I'm excited uh, about that. And really want to say thanks to all those who've gone over there to iTunes and taken the three to five seconds to leave a five star review and just a couple comments. That helps the algorithms do their magic and show this podcast to more people. And if you want to watch this podcast, ventured into YouTube. So YouTube, uh, you can search for the Afterburn Podcast. There's some flying videos as well as these video episode video interviews are up there, so swing over to YouTube, check that out. If again you're looking for some more content, but in the meantime, let's get into the podcast with Kevin Coleman. Kevin, thanks for joining me, man. Happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, talk about your aviation career, a few stories. Um, it's exciting to have you on here. So thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. And you know, it's uh been an exciting few weeks for us, uh, announcing that we're the only American pilot in the new world championship air race. That's a big honor and, uh, looking forward to 2022 for that.
0: Yeah, dude, we're going to dig into that. But before we do that, will you give everyone kind of like the 32nd elevator pitch of who you are and just a snapshot of like where it began and where you end. And then we'll, uh, we'll dig into that.
1: Yeah. So my name is Kevin Coleman. Uh, I'm an American aerobatic airshow pilot and now air race pilot. Uh, I grew up in an aviation family. My dad uh, flew air shows as a hobby uh, before I was born until I was seven. And then my older brother started flying air shows then. So I grew up going to air shows, flying air shows, and flying aerobatics is all I wanted to do since I was three years old. So uh, I started taking aerobatic lessons from a guy named Marion Cole when I was 10 years old. And uh, like I said, ever since I was three, this has been my focus. And uh, I've just been lucky and had the right opportunities to make it all work.
0: Well, you say luck that that's definitely, I mean, it's probably a small piece of it, right, right place, right time, but to pursue a passion like you're doing from such a young age to now, like you don't just do that and just like stumble across it. I've seen you fly. Uh, it is insane. Like that takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication to get to that point. So it's not just something that you can just fall into and say, Oh, here it goes. It definitely helps to know the right people, right. To get you to the exposure and things like that. But
1: Yeah. Lucky for me, like, uh, like I said, I I grew up in it. So, uh, my dad has a passion for it. Uh, my mom is, I mean, I've been flying air shows for, uh, 12 years now. I'm 30. So actually it's my 13th year of flying air shows. So, uh, at first my mom didn't really particularly like it, but she's, uh, grown to like it a little more now. Uh, so yeah, I've just, I've been lucky. I grew up in the right family with the right opportunities and I just try to take advantage of all those opportunities. I've been able to work with the best people in the world and, uh, the best coaches in the world. So, uh, every opportunity that I get, I just try to try to take and, uh, make the best of it.
0: Yeah. So you say your mom doesn't really like it. I think that is something that is probably not uncommon amongst, uh, air show performers, wives, girlfriends, boy, whatever it is. Um, because it can't be dangerous. Can you tell me just a little bit about, you know, how you approach flying air shows or flying races? Because, you are buying inherent risk when you do that. So what's your take on it? How do you approach it? How do you mitigate that risk?
1: Yeah, you know, there is risk in everything we do. Um, you know, from a young age, it's been drilled into me to be a precise pilot uh, with any kind of flying. If you're just flying around or if you're doing a competition aerobatics, airshow aerobatics, or race. So uh, being precise and being perfectly calculated is just something that's been in my head. I'm so, you know, preparation for an air show or preparation, preparation for an air race for me all goes back in to me being lucky and having the right opportunity. All I do is fly aerobatic airplanes. So, um, you know, 10 months out of the year, I'm doing nothing but flying aerobatics. I'm only focused on aerobatics. I'm only focused on racing. Uh, so just the right opportunity for me to be able to solely focus on this is what's made it, uh, made it really good for me obviously there's always the risk like i said with with the airshow flying low to the ground with the air race flying low to the ground um but as long as you have the right preparation and the right mindset and understand those those risks and how to mitigate those risks and make them as small as possible it's really a pretty safe sport to be in in my opinion
0: yeah and that's what you're doing the f-16 demo that was a pretty rare thing for f-16 pilots to do it's just not normal to pull that many g's that low to the ground but I say it was inherently safe, right? Because that was my only focus at the time. That's all I did. Now, there are a couple of things, which I think most people found surprising. It was like, hey, what's the most dangerous maneuver that you do? I mean, obviously pulling the Gs repeatedly, like the chance of blacking out, that would be a pretty instant uh, Debbie Downer. But the split S maneuver, I think, was my most dangerous maneuver. That's the one where um, if you goof that one up and I... Probably military demos, if you went back over the course of all the accidents, you probably find the majority of them were in the split S maneuver, which yeah. is a relatively benign maneuver in my opinion. But that's that's part of it too, that leads you down the trail. Yeah. Is there anything particular what what's your take on that? Is there a maneuver that you do that like you know this is the riskiest one, you really gotta be focused, or is it all of them?
1: Uh, it's funny that you bring up the split S. So a split S is something that an airshow pilot, a civilian airshow pilot would never do. You hardly Ever, 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 ever see a civilian airshow pilot do any kind of split S maneuver. Uh just because there's a lot of, as you know, there's a lot of factors that go into a split S. You gotta make sure your altitude's right on top, speed's right on top. There's a lot of factors. Uh, so you won't ever see a civilian airshow pilot really do a split S. For me, you know, when people ask like what's the most dangerous thing that you do, honestly, we practice it so much and I do it so much that for me in my mind it's all equal um you know there's not one for me that is uh more dangerous or more out of control like when you watch people like myself or or michael goulian or rob holland or any of these guys that are really good and the airplane's tumbling around and it looks totally out of control it's actually completely in control we can stop the tumble in any attitude that we want any direction that we want so um but if i guess if i had to pick one there's not a lot of people that uh push around corners to the surface anymore and i'm one of the few doing that uh people don't do it just because it's really uncomfortable uh, and it takes a lot of practice to be able to do that safely and uh there's a few other elements to go into it so probably if i had to pick one thing that i'm doing right now that a lot of people aren't doing would be pushing to the surface so like i'll push around a corner you know five six seven negative g's to 15 10 15 feet off the surface so um pushing is always harder than pulling and you know it's one thing the pushing is something that i watched sean tucker do as a kid and it always impressed me because there's not a lot of like i said there's not a lot of people that are pushing around corners to the surface and uh, every time i saw tucker do it i just thought it was the most impressive thing ever so uh, it's something that i set out to do um, i really started working on it maybe six or seven years ago and then started adding it to my show about four years ago so it took me about two years to get good enough where no matter what the wind conditions were—crosswind, headwind, tailwind, whatever—whatever whatever the conditions were for me to be completely confident that round in the corner wouldn't be a big deal. So uh, now I would say that's probably the thing that scares the most people because you, even as some of my coaches watch me and other airshow performers watch me, uh, just pushing to the surface is just an uncomfortable feeling and an uncomfortable thing to watch. But uh, it's probably the one that I enjoy the most, to be honest with
0: you. Yeah. Well, I just threw up listening to that. Cause I did negative four with Rob and that was a terrible experience, but I know it's like anything you get used to it. I'm sure. But here, can you kind of walk me through that? Because in my mind, as I listen to you and I'm trying to think about, I don't know if I've seen you push around a corner. I'm sure now I'll be very attuned to it when you're doing that. Obviously you're the only one in the airshow show box, not a factor there, but your visibility, like I'm used to pulling G's looking out the top of the canopy and you can see where you're going can see where you're pulling to. Versus if you're pushing, you got the bottom of the plane. Or is that not a factor?
1: It's not a factor because you're upside down. So I'm looking through the canopy. So actually pushing around a corner in the extra is uh, better visibility than pulling around a corner. Yeah, okay. So just the way that the airplane's coming down and where I'm sitting and I'm able to look, I actually have a much better view of the ground than I would if I was pulling around the corner. So really going back to it, just the hardest thing about pushing is just being uncomfortable and i've just had the right people and the right coaches where all these uncomfortable positions for me are comfortable so um, you know when i'm pushing around the corner or pushing up to a vertical or anything uh you know it's just something that i'm comfortable with and something that i've been training for my whole life and i'm used to and it's actually just another day as you know when you're doing the f-16 demo uh you kind of just get in a rhythm and everybody that doesn't see it every day is like wow this is amazing which it is but for you it's just your job it's just another day like everything's hey it's just a tuesday right uh i'm just here to do my job
0: how many times do you fly a week
1: uh during the season i'll start training about march 1st and my season usually goes through november and i'll fly two times a day 5 days a week okay uh when i'm really training so and i would say that's More than most, you know, me and Rob really push each other really hard and practice a bunch. Um, Rob's, I've always had a a big practice ethic. Uh, Myself and Bill Stein always practice a bunch. And now when I started flying with Rob, dang, probably like seven or eight years ago, we both push each other really hard. So we practice a bunch, Uh, which is why, you know, Rob has elevated himself to the top, top of the top. So. Um, if I can just try to catch up and keep up with him, that's the goal.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, a benefit too, is like you're down in Louisiana, you guys have an aerobatic box right there at the airport. So you can go out there and it's relatively low density airspace. So I imagine activating the airspace is not that big of a deal. So you can go out there and just get a lot of reps, which is nice.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. The practice area that we have is a aerobatic box at the airport, like you said, from the surface to 5,000 feet. So Plenty of room, uh, you know, I can fly as much as I want. We don't have any noise complaints or anything like that. Uh, the community around here really supports the whole aerobatic flying thing, which is quite funny. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm lucky again, that just falls in the lock of right place, right time, with the right opportunity and, uh, just trying to make the best
0: of that. So you're, uh, for those who are listening, this is also up on YouTube, Kevin's decked out in some Red Bull gear which is another piece of this. So you do the air show piece, which is awesome, but also the racing piece. So you're a Red Bull air racer up until, well, I guess was the last year when they finally made the announcement. they were going to stop doing that series, but you got some big news too coming out uh, this last week or so.
1: Yeah. I was part of the Red Bull air race from 2016 until it ended in 2019. Uh, that was something that was a long process, uh, for me. Um, in 2003, when the Red Bull Air started, obviously Michael Gouling and Kirby Chambliss were a part of that. and uh, I was already flying aerobatics, already getting lessons, and I was 13 years old. So uh, when I saw that, I'm like, hey, I want to do that too. So kind of set out to do that. And when I was 20, uh, in 2010, I was flying air shows, and that's when Red Bull Air Ais started recruiting me. And that uh, kind of started the process of doing aerobatic camps with a coach over in Europe and going back and forth to Europe, flying aerobatics. And then um, everything fell into place again, right time, right opportunity and got lucky and took advantage of the situation I was in. And in 2015, I got invited to do a a rookie camp for the pylons for the Red Bull Air Race. And uh, there was, I think my class was six or seven people and three of us went through. Okay, Um, Had an awesome career in the lower series of the Red Bull Air Race. Um, Always um, uh, was in the championship hunt every year, one races every year, uh, kind of was always right there. So in 2019, it was kind of a bummer when Red Bull said that they were pulling the plug on it and the project was over, but now there's the new one. So it's the world championship air race, new investors really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be for the most part, it's going to be Red Bull air race with new ownership. Okay. Uh, a few different pilots, um, few different locations so really looking forward to it and um yeah it announced last friday that i was the only american pilot in the aero gp1 class so really looking forward to the opportunity already got a good team around me with uh with everything got a good airplane we just got done with 10 days of testing with it trying to make it better and figure out its weaknesses and its strong points and uh just trying to make it better and get ready for the 2022
0: season what do the logistics look like behind doing a world air race? Is Obviously, your plane, you can't go hop across the ocean and all these race sites, I imagine it's going to be kind of like Red Bull, like you mentioned, it's going to be across the globe. So what does that look like?
1: Yeah, it's really amazing uh, what goes into the air race. You know, About 400 people travel with the air race, and that's everybody from the caterers, the janitors, to the people putting up the hangers, to the pilots, to... Everything, the media, everything. So it's a big undertaking. It's really amazing when we get to a location, you know, two weeks before the location, and it's just a normal city downtown or a normal airport, wherever we're at. And then on race weekend, it's like our own little city, you know, how everything goes up, how the hangars go up, how the control towers go up. Uh, it's really amazing how all that works and everything that goes into it. Most of the time, uh, everything is air freighted. So the airplanes get taken apart. Uh, the race airplanes get taken apart and uh, put into special boxes and air freighted all over the world. Sometimes they go uh, sea freight. So, yeah, it's, it really is an amazing undertaking what, what the organization has to do. And uh, the, the whole team, like I said, from the janitors all the way to the pilots, how it all has to work in unison for, to, have the, to have the races. And like I said, it's about 400 people to make all that
0: happen. How big is your team?
1: Uh, My team right now is three, uh, myself, plus three people. So, obviously, I fly the plane. Uh, A guy named Jason Recep, who worked for Kirby Chambliss for 16 years uh, as his technician, uh, has come on board our team now. Uh, So, he's by far the best um, aerobatic airplane maintainer uh, on the planet. I mean, especially when it comes to the Edge 540, which is what I'll be flying in the race. Uh, He knows more about it than anybody else. So, I'm glad to have him, lucky to have him. Uh, I have Paulo Iscold as the, as our engineer and tactician. Paulo worked for uh, Paul Bonham uh, in 2015 and they won a world championship uh, in the air race. And then he came on with Kirby when Paul retired. So I started working with Paulo uh, in 2016 when I came to the race and uh, we started all of my success in the air race. A lot has to do with Paulo and uh, his help and, uh what he brings so i'm super lucky to have him on the team because he won't admit it but i'm sure that every team has called him trying to hire him so it's uh it's an <laughs> honor to have him on our team and um uh, just hired a girl her name is cambry laurent she uh is going to be doing all of our comms and pr stuff so uh, she's gonna be a real asset to the team too so we've got a good pl- good team in place we have a good airplane and uh hopefully we can just put all the pieces together and i can do my part and we should win races in the first year
0: what uh so you're saying 2022 is when the season kicks off i imagine just between now and then it's just doing some practice lining the team up getting things in a rhythm and you're going to be doing air shows as well so that's a pretty busy 21 but are there going to be any practice races or is that going to be something you're all just kind of doing at home
1: yeah right now everything's just kind of at home uh like you said flying air shows full-time so uh We're going to be bouncing back and forth right now. There are planes in California, which is where uh, Paulo is based. He's a professor there at Cal Poly. He's a aeronautical engineer professor. Uh, So we're just going to be bouncing back and forth, flying air shows, going to California, uh, making new mods for the plane, trying to get it ready. Hopefully we'll have all the mods, and everything done by middle of July. We'll have about a month to test fly in August to make sure all the mods work and uh, get it repainted and rebranded and everything. And, Uh, it'll probably ship, uh, to go to the first race. I would assume sometime in November or December. So we've got a bunch to do in a short amount of time, but, uh, no doubt we'll get it done.
0: What, uh, goes into like the modification is this, I mean, is this sitting in a wind tunnel and you're going through just trying to streamline as much as you can, as well as, I don't know, tweaking some of the, the inner workings of the plane and the motor just to give you just a little bit more power and things like that. Yeah,
1: there's, a there's more that goes into these race teams than people than people see or people know. Um, usually I just stay out of it and I'm letting follow <laughs> deal with it. Follows an aeron- aeronautical engineer. He's world champion air race. Uh, he's built all kind of world record airplanes. Um, so I just fly the airplane and give him feedback and let <laughs> him do the designing and modifications and whatever he thinks is going to make the airplane better. I trust that he can do it. So, um, when it comes to that stuff, I'm just the dummy in the in the cockpit. I tell him what it feels like, what I think can be better, and let him go from there. And him and Jason, uh, you know, Paulo will design the parts and the mods that we want to do, and then him and Jason will build them out of carbon. Uh, so, you know, a lot goes into the weight of the airplane and where we want the weight to be and uh, making minimum weight. And um, so, I mean again there's so much that goes into these race planes i can't go into too much detail about what we've got going right now but yeah. uh we've got some really good apollo's got some really good ideas and we did some testing on that uh over the last couple of weeks and we're moving the airplane in a in a good direction it was already in a really good spot but it's uh even just after 10 days of testing it's already in a better spot so no doubt by the time the 2022 race season comes we'll be in a very very good spot to to be competitive
0: yeah you sound like you're kind of like me like I just want to go faster. I don't really care how it gets there, you know? Yeah.
1: The hardest part is just writing the checks. Um, <laughs> it's expensive to mod. These things are expensive airplanes, but yeah, I mean, I'm just, I let everybody, the way our team's working right now is everybody has their job. Everybody has what they're really good at. Um, like I said, Paulo's one of the most respected aeronautical engineers on the planet. Uh, he's built a bunch, bunch of airplanes, won a air race world championship design some stuff for nasa uh so that's his thing whatever he thinks is going to make it better cool you do that uh jason helps with that helps make the airplane better and keeps the airplane maintained at the highest level possible and uh you know Cambry makes sure all that happens in a timely manner and everything's organized and i fly the plane so yeah. uh i try try not to micromanage let those people do what they're good at and then just let me do what i do and uh so far so good you know nobody there's nobody get i'm not getting anybody's way apollo you know it's, it everything's working very nice and i really really like where the direction's going and uh, just allowing people to do their job like yeah. you know you're a fighter pilot uh, you have your crew guys your crew guys are good at what they do or they wouldn't be there you're good at what you do or you wouldn't be there so they let you fly the airplane they don't try to tell you how to fly the airplane i assume and you don't try to tell them how to maintain it so uh, let them do their job to what they're good at and you do your job and everything works perfectly. So that's what, uh, that's what our team is structured like.
0: Nice uh, backing up just a little bit. So you said you just turned 30, right? Relatively young dude. I would imagine if we did a cross section of what like one airshow show pilots in general, I know that is like, no kidding. A problem is because everyone is aging out. Mikey G, if you're here, if you're listening to this, <laughs> um, but no, it's air. I mean, airshow show pilots, uh, are older airshow racers uh, during the Red Bull series, uh, older. So getting young people involved in this sport is somewhat of a challenge, right? There's, there's some hurdles to get involved in it, but you're one of the guys who kind of broke through that barrier. Were there any challenges that you faced, you know, as a young guy kind of working your way into this field and this career?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, um, you know, honestly, it just goes one reason why you know for the longest time I was the youngest at this and the youngest at that, and still I guess kind of the youngest still on the air show circuit full time that I can think of. But when I was eighteen, like I was flying air shows, and uh, I mean I don't know what the average airshow show pilot age is. I would say forties, mid forties, kind of thing. Yeah. And the reason for that, it's a super expensive sport to get into. Uh. And that just goes back to where I was lucky with the right opportunity. Is my dad has a passion for it and did it. Uh, my mom, and my dad made a bunch of sacrifices and gave me every opportunity that I needed. And again, I took full advantage of all those opportunities because I knew that how lucky I was, and not a lot of people get the opportunities that I got. So, tried not to ever take advantage of of any opportunity that I have, and I think I've taken full advantage of all of them. Um, but yeah, that's just the hardest thing, man. You know, it's just aviation is an expensive thing to get into. But I think, you know, what people need to realize is it's attainable by anybody. You know, there's, and that goes for anything. If you just set whatever goal you have and just relentlessly go after that, you know, there's no way that you won't succeed at it. And You know, it was a pretty low probability, I think, of myself getting into Air Race uh, when I was a young, I was the youngest person to ever get into Red Bull Air Race. and youngest person to win a race and all that kind of stuff, that was all super low probability probably. But um, I always go with the mentality that I'm not going to let anybody outwork me. Uh, So I get up earlier than everybody else. I'll go to bed later than everybody else. I'll practice more than anybody else. And I think just that relentless attitude uh, is what's got me here. And uh, a little bit is just I had a lot to prove because I would say that the people that didn't know me or didn't know my family in, in aviation had the perception that, uh, you know, I was just there flying aerobatics as a 16 year old or a 17 year old because my dad gave me the opportunity, he just gave that to me. And I was just like doing it because I didn't have anything else to do or whatever. And the people that know me knew that that's had been my goal since I was three years old and know how much I've worked at it, how hard I've worked at it, and how I was just relentless at getting there and i think that over the years uh the people that doubted me or or thought that i was there just cuz my dad was uh wealthy enough or whatever to give me the opportunity for me to just go screw off uh flying aerobatics have come to realize how bad i want it and how hard i work at it and uh you know for me this isn't a hobby or a a weekend play thing like it's something that i want to be the best at uh And I relentlessly work, like I said, to be the best at it and to be at that high level. And, you know, I got married a year and a half ago and me and my wife talk about it. And people ask me, friends ask me, like, how long are you going to do it? And I I always tell everybody I will quit flying aerobatics full time when I'm 50 or whenever I'm not any good anymore. So whichever one of those (laughs) comes first, so. Whenever I think that I'm not at a very high level, then I'm going to quit doing it because I don't want to do it at a, at a lower level than I'm at right now.
0: Yeah. Well, so you, you brought up some interesting points, right? Like aviation, it's tough to get into it usually because this is expensive, right? But there's lots of ways to do it. Me, like military was a great way of doing it, right? Government's paying for my check and paying for my, my, my training. So there are ways to do it. But even someone like you, right, who had some opportunities uh, because your parents were involved in aviation and surrounded by it. um, I've watched plenty of people who have squandered opportunities out there that they could have had whatever, you know, because their parents were involved in X, Y, or Z, and they could have pursued that. And they either chose something different, or they just kind of fizzled out, right? So you don't get to where you're at, and you don't get to the level you're at without having that passion, without having that drive, right? Uh, And everyone's going to have different hurdles, like no matter what. And it's going to be easier for some versus others. But yeah, I think that's one thing that's you, you, whatever passion you go out there and you find, you have to have the drive to go out there and be the best, no matter what it is, if a firefighter, a doctor, lawyer, you know, otherwise, I don't know, you just kind of stumble through life and. At the end of it, you're like, well, what did I accomplish? That's the way at least I look at it, you know? No, for sure. Uh,
1: And that's like, you know, going back to what I've said several times already is every opportunity I've been given, I've tried to take full advantage of it and, uh, you know, do everything I can do to to accept that opportunity and be the best at it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people... I'm not real... I'm not a real public person, so like I don't put a whole lot out there. Uh, I'm trying to get a little more active on social media but and stuff like that. but I think what people don't realize is how hard that I've worked uh since I was literally ten years old starting to fly aerobatics, getting aerobatic lessons, how hard I've worked every single day uh, to get to where I'm at now um, and that's just one of those things that you can be given the opportunity. To do it, you can have the resources to do it, but you still got to put your ass in the seat and do the time to get to where you want to be if that's what you want to do. So uh, a lot of work uh, every day, but I wouldn't change it or trade it for anything.
0: Oh, no, That's awesome. Well, um, kind of back. on I would like to talk to just kind of like training in general. Is there anything that was particularly tough for you you know, to learn or to overcome, whether it be like just, I don't know nose to the grind doesn't sound like that was a problem, right? Cause you had that passion. Was there anything that you really had to just like kind of push through in order to get to the next step or get to the next level?
1: Yeah, I see people. Uh, I mean, I can think of a couple offhand that are around my age that are, that probably have more natural talent than I have. Um, flying aerobatics is not easy for me. Uh, that's one reason why I practice so much. I don't, I think maybe some parts have come kind of easy, but for the most part, it's been pretty hard for me to do it. Um, it takes a lot of effort from myself to be at the level that I want to be at. You know, and I see people that are, are probably better than me naturally, uh, and then they just don't care or whatever. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, but yeah, for me, like it is... It, I never thought that it was easy or it never came easy. Like I didn't ever just get an airplane and just naturally be good at it. And I didn't think so for me, it just takes a lot of focus and a lot of preparation to, to be at a high level. And uh, I mean, that's one reason why I practice so much and I work so hard at it. It's because it takes that much from me to be at that level. Um, And I'm sure, you know, you and your military flying, you've seen guys, I'm not sure what category you're in, but you've seen guys where it just comes natural and it just works for them. And then you got some guys that have to work really hard at it. And I just happen to be one of those guys that has to work really hard at it, uh, to be where I want to be.
0: Yeah, I think that's a valid thing. And I know there's a lot of stories out there. I've had, you know, buddies who are professional baseball players who had brothers and they're like, yeah, my brother was better than me, but he just didn't care. Didn't have that drive. You know, they had to like hustle. And again, that that ties back to, I think a theme that I've talked about and it's like, no matter what profession you go out there and pursue or passion, right? Like it's going to take a lot of work. If you want to be the the best at it yeah. again, there'll be different hurdles for different people and you're going to stumble at different points. But nonetheless, like if you want to, if you want to win at it, it's going to take some effort, you know, yeah. if it's, if it's worth pursuing it, I'm sure there's, there's easy stuff out there. But if you're an underwater basket weaver, like that's probably going to take some work too, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I kind of too want to talk about the, any kind of like scares or anything like that that you've run across while flying? I know I've had a few from like my brakes not working, which I think my brakes not working is probably the winner because there's nothing that's more unsettling than when you just have seen the end of the runway coming at you a couple hundred knots. But is there any kind of like scares that you've had while flying air shows or air races?
1: No, flying airplane. Not really because uh, I mean, I've been coached so hard and been prepared so much literally since I was 10 years old that, I'm already so in tune with the airplane and I'm in it so much that, you know, the airplane really never surprises me. I've had three, uh, engine failures, catastrophic engine failures. Uh, luckily all three were over airports. Yep. (laughs) Um, so I've had three dead sticks where the, in the extras where the prop like literally just running and then stops. No kidding. Um, so in the moment, uh, I had two here at home, uh, that completely stopped. And I had one in St. Augustine, Florida. And in the moment, like, I don't really, I didn't think about it. It was just reaction. Like I've trained for this. I know exactly what to do. Get the nose over, get the airspeed up, pick a spot, go for it. I was able to land on the runway all three times. And, and, and as you know, like when you're in the moment and the adrenaline's going, you're, my training instantly kicked in. I didn't have to think about anything. It was just reaction. Right. So in the moment, got it on the ground and everything's good. And then you start to think about like, Oh, wow. Like that's pretty scary. And uh, you know, that, is that could have been bad um so it's it's interesting how and being a military guy i know that y'all are trained crazier than anybody else but it's amazing how your training kicks in and you don't have to think about it it just happens and you know exactly what to do without thinking at all about it i mean because all those engine failures i mean from the time the prop stopped you know and i'm at a two of them i was at a thousand feet pretty slow one of them was in a hover, so I was at zero miles an hour. And um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it goes, <laughs> and it stops. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting when you train hard at something, even just learning how to fly, you know, you do engine failure stuff and engine out stuff. But it's amazing to me how when you really focus on stuff and you really think about it all the time and you go through all the scenarios, how your brain just reacts and then your your hands and your feet react without thinking. and you do exactly what you know you're supposed to do. So I, I wouldn't say that I've ever been scared in the airplane because those few, those handful of times uh, when I was in the plane and stuff, something bad happened, uh, I just reacted and then it was scary after the fact. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's like losing brakes or something when you're in F-16 and you're going fast, that might be scary in the moment. I could see that for sure. Uh, but yeah, for me, I think that Everything that's happened to me so far, uh, it was just scary after the fact. Like, after you sit down and you start thinking about it, you're like, whoa, that could have been really, really, really bad. I'm glad it worked out the way it did.
0: Do you practice inside your routine at different points that, hey, the motor quits and you just do a practice, you know, flame out yeah. landing?
1: Yeah. So uh, I would say that my practice routine and my discipline is different than everybody else's or a lot different than a lot of people's. Uh, every year at the beginning of the year, I don't go straight to the surface. I'll go up high. I'll go through all my spins. I'll put the airplane in all kind of crazy, unusual attitudes that I'll never be in. Have it do all kind of crazy stuff. Have it recover. Make sure all my minimum altitude recoveries are uh, the same as they should be. And then I'll start putting together my sequence and I'll start at 500 feet and I'll do a week there. And then I'll come to 250 and I'll do a week there. And then I'll slowly work to the surface. You know, I think a lot of people don't build down like that. But that's what I've always done. That's what Marion Cole taught me how to do. That's what Bill Stein and uh Sean Tucker and that's what Rob does. All the all the guys that you look at and you're like, okay, they're really, really good. And all the guys that have been doing it for a long time, like Sean Tucker and and Bill and uh Kirby and Michael, they've been doing it for a long time for a reason, because they've been doing it right. If you don't do it right, usually you get killed pretty quick doing it. So uh and those guys, you know, take that same attitude where you start slow. Build your G tolerance back up, make sure everything's good. It's been a long winter doing whatever you're doing and uh, just slowly work your way to the ground. Don't go straight to the surface.
0: How do you practice the so kind of shifting gears kind of back to the air races? How do you practice for that? Because that's all around pylons. Do you have pylons or what are you doing to prep for that?
1: We have uh, a couple um, practice tools for, that we have on our team uh, that we use. The main thing with air race, though, is just keeping your G tolerance up. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that, and girls that are in the air race don't necessarily have another aerobatic airplane. So I have had the advantage of always being able to keep my G tolerance up, even when we're in between races. Uh, you know, I'm always in an aerobatic airplane. Some of these guys are airline pilots, and then they go to the air race. And that's the first time they've been in an aerobatic airplane since the last race. So one advantage I have is, like I said, being in the, these kind of airplanes every day, all day the main thing with the race flying is just the G tolerance because you're sustaining so many G's for extended periods of time. Uh, you know, cause we can go up to 12 G's in the race. Um, so that's probably the hardest physical part about it. Um, for me, I do about 80 to hundred hours of studying, uh, before each race, uh, like, uh, studying on the computer, studying the track, having different wind conditions, uh, going through all that stuff. So, when I get to the racetrack and I'm diving into the racetrack for the first time, I have my plan. I know exactly what it's going to look like. I know exactly what I need to do uh, in the racetrack, uh, depending on the wind direction and all that kind of stuff. So, that's one thing that Apollo really helps with and something that we take very seriously because on a race weekend, you really get like 10 minutes in the track, which isn't very much. So, you know, if you get there and you waste three minutes trying to learn the track, uh, you know, you've wasted a third of your time already and now you've got to catch up so for us we come way over prepared and uh that way when we're in the track it's useful information the whole time and we never get behind
0: is that something too like i assume the track as they build it for wherever it might be they provide that information to all the racers and then i'm assuming you probably can do some kind of 3d modeling and then you're running through that then you know uh, 15 not cross from the right 15 not cross from the left and then that's going to change where you're targeting as you're hitting each pylon that's at least i got yeah exactly so
1: about three weeks before each race they'll send us the track um paulo has a system that he'll use and then send to me um for us to to look at and to go through and to make notes so it's really interesting how the air race works and how precise you have to be to be fast because Most of the races, I think the most I ever won a race by was like a tenth and a half, (laughs) which if you take your iPhone right now and you hit start stop as fast as you can, it'll be a tenth and a half. So you do a three mile track and it comes down to inches, literally inches. And so, you know, whoever is mentally better mentally prepared is who is usually going to win. What's crazy about our race and our racetrack is it's, uh, we, me and Paula say it's alive. So I have buddies that race NASCAR uh, who are in the top series who are very good. Their tracks are always the same, like same uh, oval or whatever, right? Obviously, humidity and wind affect them and uh, track temperature affect them. Tire wear affects them. But our track is alive constantly. So every minute, our track's changing with wind direction, wind speed, humidity, DA, uh, as you know, uh, temperature all these things change the track completely. So if you have a wind, let's just say out of the north at 10 knots, and then later in the afternoon, now it's out of the east at 10 knots, the track is completely different. And you have to be able to recognize that, adapt, and come up with a different plan because now just that little shift in wind, it's going to change your whole line through the track, the fastest line through the track. Um, So it's really interesting how it works and uh, how we think about it being alive is the best way to think about it. Like it's always changing. Every minute is different and you have to be able to see that and adapt and understand what's happening with the track and what's going to make it slower. What's going to make it faster because all those things are constantly changing.
0: So I've only watched the races on TV and yeah, that takes, I don't know, it was like three hours, four hours kind of from start to finish. Uh, Is that a normal race day where you're going to get all the races in, in that window?
1: I wish it was only three or four hours for us. Uh, usually, a race day for us is a long day, probably like a fourteen-hour day.
0: Uh, I
1: mean, obviously the race itself, of course, is three hours. Yep. But by the time you know you wake up and leave the hotel, get to the race airport, you know, make sure everything's in line. I'll sit down with Paulo. We'll go over all the data. Um, we already have a plan the day before the race of what we're going to do, but. You know, we'll sit down in the morning like, okay, the wind changed this, so you need to do this, and uh, it's a little bit warmer, so this is going to happen, and uh, you know, it's a little more humid, so the wings going to react different, and we need to do this and we need to do that. So you just nail down all those fine details, and that is like again, the people that are mentally prepared and the people that can take those very, very, very tiny details and make them right are going to be the ones that win. So a lot goes into goes into a race day and, and a preparation for sure.
0: Well, I kind of, I guess I should have preface it where I'm curious is, you know, the fact, just like density altitude, right? Someone who's not very smart like me, I, I at least know that's going to change like throughout the day as it warms up and you mentioning yep. humidity. So the guy who's first out the gate in Fort Worth, Texas, right? Where it's probably 80 degrees by the time, you know, two or three hours later, now it's 95, 98 degrees. You're at a, I would imagine I think a significant disadvantage from the guy who flew, you know, an hour or two hours prior to you. Is that not, I mean, how does that factor in?
1: Yeah. Luckily the way the format works is the head to head thing. So usually the person you're flying against is all that really matters. And usually you're within a couple minutes of those guys. Okay. So that's really all that matters. Um, qualifying, uh, for the race, uh, on Saturday is usually where you'll see a pretty big difference because that'll last, you know, an hour and a half or something. So it might be an hour and a half from the first guy to the last guy. And like you're talking about, it, a lot of things can change. The wind can die down. The wind can increase. Um, and that's just kind of luck of the draw. But when you get on race day and it's head-to-head, you're within a couple minutes of whoever you're directly competing against to get to the next round. So it doesn't usually have that much of an effect. What you'll see is when you're head-to-head and you're doing all that and you're going through the race, The first group that flies might be faster or slower than the last group that flies as a whole just because of the conditions changing. Okay. So, uh, you know, let's just say the first group does a 55-second, a 56-second, and then the last group does a 58-second, a 59-second. It's not because those pilots are any worse than the first group. It's just because the conditions have changed in whatever way to make it slower or faster.
0: Gotcha other thing so how much does it matter so if you're going head-to-head competition are you guys taking off at the same time one guy's holding to entering the track or is it you have racer one takes off flies the track then racer two takes off because i would imagine too like if you're holding you're I know, burning i don't know a gallon two gallons yeah. of gas like all of those things come into play when you're talking a tenth of a second
1: yeah so that's where uh So we're uh, sanctioned by the FAI. Um, So after the race, so there's a minimum takeoff weight that you have to make and there's also a minimum landing weight. So you take off pretty much at the same time. When you get out of the airplane, the airplane is reweighed. So before you take off, the pilot and the airplanes weighed at race weight. So with gas, with smoke oil, and you have to make the minimum weight. When you come back, the airplane goes on the scales, the pilot gets on the scales and there's a certain percentage. I don't know what the percentage is. That's Jason's job, not mine. To make sure they're so you can only move the weight a certain percentage okay um so that's how they keep all that fair so uh the airplanes and the pilots are constantly weighed to to stay as fair as possible on that but before that you're exactly right people would take off and whoever the first guy was to fly would be at a weight disadvantage because the guy in the hold would be out there full rich wide open burning as much gas as possible trying to make it as light as possible so it was interesting before the The Red Bull Air Race, the way it progressed is because the pilots just got smart. Like you'd see people taxing around at 1800 RPM, just dragging (laughs) the brakes, burning gas, trying to make it lighter. Right. So uh, then the organization's like, okay, you can't do that. And then you had people out there full rich, just burning as much gas. Like, okay, well, you can't do that. So that's when, you know, the rule book is this big in the beginning and now it's this big now because people like Kirby and Michael and those guys have just continuously. F- find a way, <laughs> push the rules. Uh, so you know, like we got our rule book uh, two weeks ago, and you know it's Paulo's job not to read the rules. It's Paulo's job to read what the rules don't say. So don't read what they say. I want you to read what they don't say. Yeah, and that's what I want you to focus on. You read in between the lines. You don't read the lines, and uh, that's why every year the rule book just gets a little bit bigger because <laughs> there's a lot of smart people uh, that are out there trying to find an advantage.
0: And this is, I mean, now thinking about it too, right? Like even your weight, because as you get the plane getting modified, I imagine 12 ounces here, four ounces there, you know, everything that you can trim off that plane and make it more efficient is critical. So even you, I would think, in the pilot weight, I mean, is that a factor or is that not something?
1: For sure, it's a factor. So uh, right now I'm at 170, 170 pounds, and that's a really comfortable. Spot for me, that's just kind of where I am all the time. That's just where my body wants to be. Uh, Paulo wants me under 160 um, because every <laughs> pound that I can lose, we can move. Every pound the airplane loses and every pound that I lose, we can put weight where we want it. And as a pilot, you know, yeah. uh, where the weight is matters a lot. For the race, we want an aft CG so it'll turn better. So every pound that I lose is a pound that we can put in the tail. Uh, or wherever Paulo decides that he wants to put it. So, yeah, it's extremely big deal. Uh, it it gets so crazy that uh, you know guys are. I mean, it's ridiculous what we'll do for literally ounces. Uh, you know, if you take a half inch screw that's usually in the cowling, and it's got four threads coming through it, and you only want one thread, you'll shave it down three threads. So, you know, you'll take that much off of a screw to save that much weight. But if you do that on a hundred screws, it's like, I mean, it's not enough to do anything. It's like ounces still, but But every little, every little bit counts. So people are grinding down screws where there's just enough to come through the nut plates. Uh, I mean, it's, people see the race and they, you know, obviously it's entertaining and it's fun to watch and all that stuff. But if people only knew all the craziness that goes into making these airplanes fast and, and uh making them light it's just amazing and mind-blowing how much goes into it how much gas do you burn during a race yeah so uh i can give you an estimate <laughs> yeah uh it depends so like it depends on how you've got the engine set up and what what you're doing with the engine uh mixture wise uh but the minimum takeoff uh fuel i think it's 12 gallons um most of the time you know, you'll burn six or seven gallons kind of thing is what it is. Okay. So, uh, it's not that much fuel because you're, there's a lot to do with it. It depends on how far the racetrack is from the race airport. Depends on what kind of strategy you're trying to use. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. So it, it's always evolving and it's always changing and it'll be different from pilot to pilot.
0: I might be thinking about it too much, but you know, uh, you're trying to move that CG aft, you know, you're inking every last ounce of, weight out of the plane and i know it's a short race but as a plane does it change its handling characteristics throughout that race or is it too short to notice it's too short to notice yeah you won't
1: the way that the length of the race and the way the airplanes are set up you don't notice like fuel burn or anything like that if that's what you're asking yeah it's like as you burn if you have it set up for ferry flying, as you burn fuel off, you'll feel the CG come forward uh, on the edges. But the race, the way the fuel is, and all that kind of stuff, you won't you won't feel any change at all with it.
0: Yeah. So again, this is kind of like flying different planes, right? Like I just there's some things I just never have to worry about, but I think about other planes, you'd have to worry about uh, accelerated stalls and things like that. Is that a factor? I know the Red Bull cap the G's at some point to like twelve. Am I might yep. making that up. It's twelve. Was yeah, the rationale behind that. Are you worried about accelerated stalls? Is that a thing or
1: yeah, so you'll see that uh in VTMs or vertical turning maneuvers, which is basically just a half cube and how we turn around, that's where you make up the most time uh in a racetrack, or that's where you have the opportunity to make up the most time in a racetrack if you do it properly. And you'll see guys hit high speed stalls all the time. And uh, depends on how big and how deep in the stall you get. You know, it'll cost you a second, second and a half, which is huge because yeah. you're winning by tenths of a second. So if you do hit a high-speed stall, you're done. The reason why the G rule came into place, Jason tells this story all the time. And the it must have been like 2006 or 2007 when the Red Bull race kind of first started going, and as the rule book started growing, uh, they were in, I think it was Berlin, and there was no speed limit rule. So you could, so now you come in at 200 knots ground speed. They have all these computers on the airplane and they're very sophisticated. They know everything that you do. You come in at 200 knots and it's judged by the computer. If you go faster, you can be DQ'd and all that kind of stuff. So, but in the early days before they had all this figured out, there was no speed limit. So you could just go as high as you wanted to and just dive it in. And whoever was the bravest (laughs) would be going the fastest. Right. So uh, Jason always tells the story uh, of Kirby and Mike Mangold in, uh, in Berlin. It was a track, and the first turn was basically like 100, a 110-degree right turn. So you had to go through the start gate and then back over to your right. Well, Kirby and Mike Mangold uh, were just crazier than everybody else, I guess. And they would start at like 6,000 feet and just push the throttle forward and just dive it into the first gate. So they were pulling like 15 Gs for the first turn and uh like red bull the air race organization thought it was awesome like it, they were announcing it over the intercom like how many g's they were pulling and stuff like that and a guy named eric zivko who owns zivko who makes the edges happened to be there and apparently uh mr zivko was not very happy that they were pulling 15 g's in his airplane uh so he's the one that put the number that you had to have it can only be 12 g's um because of the manufacturing uh, specs so uh, the G rule came because of Mike Mangold and Kirby Chambliss <laughs> being—I uh, don't know the right word for it—braver than everybody yeah. <laughs> else and pulling fourteen and a half and fifteen Gs in a in a Zipco Edge.
0: Well, it's like—is it plus or minus twelve? Is that the manufacturer? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. right, and that's how they got the plus twelve number. So there's yeah. an engineering limit, right, of one hundred fifty percent or something. That's probably what
1: Kirby Right, is. but those guys don't care. They just want to win a race. They don't care how many Gs are pulling or anything, or whatever you know. So. So there was that was when there was no speed limit, so you could just go as high as you wanted to and just dive it in. So then they're like, okay, okay, well, you can't do that. Now you're going to have a helicopter hovering at 1,000 feet, and you got to be below the helicopter. When you come by the helicopter, if you're not below it, you're DQ'd. Well, that didn't matter. Then they just went to 10,000 feet and just screamed down through the helicopter because you had to be level, and then they still have the same speed. So then they're like, okay, so that's how we got the ground speed rule. So now 200 knots ground speed is how... How we have the start rule. So uh again, just those guys reading in between the lines, reading yeah. what the rule book doesn't say, not what it does say. And that's why the rule book is just continuously growing and getting bigger.
0: That's why the Navy gets to do whatever they want because they look at it It's like what did the what does the rule book, you know, what does it say? If it doesn't say I can't do it, then you can do it. Air Forces, it. if it's if it's not in the rule book, you can't do it. You know, it tells you yeah. what you can do. So I like that style. Just yeah, it's not in the rule book. So go do it yeah. until they change the rules.
1: Yeah. So Paulo gets, uh, Apollo gets paid to read in between the lines and read what it doesn't say.
0: Yeah. That's wild. I had no idea. So when they put that speed limit cap on it, did it drastically change what guys oh, for sure? Yeah. you know,
1: like I don't know how well, you know, Kirby, he's a funny guy. Um, the red line on a edge is 230 knots or whatever. And this in the early days, they didn't have all the sophisticated computers on the airplanes. And, uh, so I know the number of indicated airspeed that they were seeing at that race in Berlin. I'm not going to say it, but it, <laughs> let's just say it was well over the red line. So they were going super fast.
0: Yeah. Making it happen. Hey, if you're going to, yeah. if you want to win, you got to go fast. <laughs> well,
1: that's the thing. So, uh, Jason tells a story and of uh, watching Mangold, Mike Mangold, do it. And Kirby's like, look at that idiot. And he does a fast time. And, uh, next time Kirby just did it even more. So it's just, the way the race works is if you want to win, you just got to do a little bit more than the next guy. So they just kept getting higher, higher, higher and going faster, faster and faster and pulling harder, harder and harder. And,
0: uh,
1: <laughs> it is what it is.
0: Well, rolling into 2022, have they announced, uh, what cities are going to have the races or how many races are going to be.
1: Yeah. The, you can keep up with the world championship air race on all social platforms. It's at the air race. Okay. Uh, the schedule should be out within the next month. I think is what their goal is. Uh, I know that they already have a bunch of host cities interested. They're a little hesitant right now just because of all the COVID and not knowing what's going on in the world. Uh, and certain places are still locked down and stuff like that. So I think the schedule will be out soon. Again, it'll be all over the world. And what I was told is there will be one race in the United States in 2022.
0: Okay. Which seems like that's about that was about the average for Red Bull, right? Just One, one or two. Yeah, one yeah. or two that you'd find it. So uh, that'll be cool. Looking forward to that. It'll be fun to see planes flying around fast and racing each other again, you know? For sure.
1: Yeah. I'm ready to get back going, ready to not be locked in the house. So
0: no doubt. What's your uh, next air show?
1: Uh, I have Barksdale air force base this weekend, which is my home show. Okay. Uh, So excited about that. It's going to be, it's going to be a drive-in show, which is going to be interesting. Okay. You know, and I'm honestly surprised that we're having a show at an air force base. I think this will be the first one.
0: I was gonna say that, that actually is surprising because most DOD shows I think have already canceled for this year. There might I know there's yeah. there's like one or two. Barksdale being one of the examples. Um, but I think most of them have already just said, nope, we're done and they'll they'll punt it till next year. Yes,
1: yeah, so we were told it was just up to the wing commander, I guess. Okay. Of what they want to do. And ours is like, no, we're having it. So it's drive in. Uh, which is better than nothing. Um, should be interesting to see how it goes. Glad to get back going. It's really good for the community and local economy and just ready to get back flying, man. It's going to be a good show. They put a, together a good lineup. and We have the Thunderbirds and the F-22 demo and myself and Rob Holland and Matt Yunkin and um, Shockwave with, and Chris Darnell with the Shockwave good. trucks. So uh should be a good show. And I know people are ready to get out of their houses and and uh, have something fun to do.
0: Well, so yeah, I was just down at Sun and Fun, what, two or three weeks ago, and it seemed like everything was normal, normal, it was good. Like, obviously, there's a pent-up energy to get out and get back to it, which is cool to see.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I know you are, and all the rest of the world is. So hopefully uh, we're on the downhill slide of this thing, and everybody's healthy and safe, and we'll get back to normal life.
0: No doubt. Well, Kevin, as we wrap up here, man, I always like to ask guests, you know, if you found 15, 16-year-old Kevin walk on the streets, you bumped into him, is there any kind of advice you would give him, tips, tricks, or maybe say, hey, do this instead of that?
1: Yeah, I think um, I, would, I would probably tell myself a couple things, uh, actually, when I'm thinking about it. Uh, probably enjoy the journey a little bit more. I was so focused on what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to accomplish that I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I should have Flying's a fun thing or whatever you choose, baseball or basketball, golf, whatever. It should be fun. And I think that I took a little bit of the fun out of it just because of how focused I was and, and what my goals were. And then I think the other thing that I would probably tell myself is for sure. Don't give up. You know, obviously there's only 12 pilots in the new air race in the top class out of the world, 12 pilots. Um, so you're, your uh, chances of getting one of these spots are super low, yeah, right? No so doubt. the odds are definitely against you. They're never with you. Uh, and there was no guarantee that I would get to this spot. So there were definitely times, you know, as I was 16, 17, 18, 19, that I didn't know if I was going to be good enough to make it where I wanted to be. And obviously my family spending a lot of time and a lot of money to, to help get me there before I was getting paid to do it full time. And, um you know, so there, there was a lot of doubt in myself a few times. Like, man, am I good enough to do this? Like, am I going to be good enough to to have Red Bull as a sponsor? You know, so I think that'd be the two things. Enjoy it a little bit more. Have a little more fun with it. Don't be so serious all the time. And then, uh, you know, don't give up. So it would have been very easy to give up. And I'm glad that I didn't.
0: Awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining me. Can uh, Again, right before we part. Tell everyone where we can find you if they're looking out there on the uh, interwebs and then also, again, uh, hit on the Air Race.
1: Yeah, so uh, all my social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is all at the Kevin Coleman. The Air Race now is the Air Race uh, on all social platforms. You'd be following along on that. They'll be giving updates uh, continuously now. They just announced all the pilots, which is great. So, yeah, we're just follow along and you'll get to see uh, I'm trying to be a little more open with my life and uh, show what's going on and going on with the team and a little bit of my personal life. And yeah, man, we're just out there hustling, trying to get the plane ready, trying to put more sponsorship together. The, you know, the funding is the hard part uh, of these deals. (laughs) So, uh, just trying to get the money in place and having a good time and hopefully uh, win some races and represent the United States at a very high level. And, bring home a uh, air race world championship back to the united states it hasn't been done since 2006 i believe so i think we'll have a good opportunity to do that and uh just looking forward to to representing my country and uh winning races and and winning the championship
0: love it man i look forward to seeing you out there racing. I look forward to seeing you at air shows so kevin thanks again for taking the time man
1: yeah rain i appreciate it man
0: thanks for listening in hope you enjoyed today's episode Remember, swing over to iTunes, leave a rating or review. That helps the podcast grow. Additional content, and if you're looking to support the podcast, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast. Until next time. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Garren Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit GunsGarren.com slash rain.